Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Griffin. He slowly started losing his eyesight as a young teenager, and he's always been great at athletic abilities. And uh, he's still to this day, very athletic with his vision impairment. And he is the founder CEO of the Foreseeable Future Foundation, which helps visually impaired and blind people right now. So thank you so much, Griffin, for being here. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about your story? Of course. Well, thanks, Sarah. So as you mentioned, I'm visually impaired. I have retina dyspigmentosa, which is a retinal degenerative disease, which slowly takes your peripheral vision and shrinks and shrinks until you have no vision at all. Uh, right now, I have some vision. Uh, my vision, I always describe it as a, if anyone's used an old Etch-a-Sketch toy, shaking it up and it looks very blurry and distorted, but you can make out some lines and contrast and color. Uh, not too much color, but those sorts of things and some shadows. That's kind of what my vision is at the moment. And that's what I'm able to see. Uh, I used a cane for a while. And then uh, more recently, I, I started using a guide dog, which has been great. So my vision has slowly been getting worse over time, but it hasn't stopped me from doing anything that I, I want to do. I think I do more things than people with full vision actually do on a day-to-day a -day basis. But we found out about the visual impairment actually through sports. So one day I was, I made the travel baseball team in California and I was running one way and the ball would be going another way. And we realized there was something wrong that that was uh, an issue. And then the next day at practice, I still couldn't see. And a few months uh, later, I was diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. No one else in my family has it. And uh, I always say I was, I was the lucky one, but we actually found out through sports at first, People thought I just needed glasses and glasses helped out at night because someone who has retinitis pigmentosa can actually see the negative contrast better. So a white ball with a black sky, I did fine. Everyone thought the glasses worked and that was the cure. And then, uh, few, uh, and then the next day of practice, I couldn't see again during the day. So that was kind of the interesting journey and, and focus on to figuring out what this was what what do we need to do and how can we you know fix it or work towards fixing it so um that's kind of how it all started and in high school uh in middle school and in high school it continued to get worse and uh some you know kids could be mean uh, pe teachers and certain people didn't know how to incorpor incorporate me into pe and all those other things so um it was a kind of a challenge figuring out how to uh, deal with that and then also try to navigate with losing more and more vision because I didn't know what I could see on a year-to-year -year basis. It was very slight, so that was challenging. And uh, I'm night blind, so I couldn't see at night and telling your peers you can't see. Uh, when you're fine during the day, they don't believe you and you know all those sorts of things. So that, that was challenging and navigating that, but um, never let it stop me from doing what I wanted to do and was always active with sports, uh, even up until college where I had to stop playing sports and was probably not a good idea. Um, I still in college was involved in, uh, the certain clubs and community and 
really embracing my visual impairment and blindness at that point, because when I was younger, I didn't really talk about it that much. I didn't tell that many people about it. And then, you know, in, in high school, I decided, well, this isn't something I can fix. So I'll just talk about it. How, what else can I fix? I can be active. I can eat healthy, those sorts of things. So fitness was always a big part of what I do. And uh, then from, from that at college at Susquehanna, I was able to have more people ask me questions on what you could, you know, can and can't see. And through a school a club at the business school, we started doing awareness events on campus. We did a dining in the dark. We did aware, uh, an awareness event where people had to be blindfolded, simulated, simulating different visual impairments. And then we did a walk to raise money for research for an organization and we did that every year. In my last year, we raised about forty dollars to $60,000 for an organization. It made my personal and professional uh, time at Susquehanna even that much more meaningful. It brought a lot of education to the community and to things in the environment there. And it kind of gave me the opportunity to see that I, you know, that, that this community, younger visually impaired and blind people, uh, need to feel like they can talk about their visual impairment and blindness if they want to, where the resources are, how they can get active. Uh, you know, at college, I learned about more about adaptive sports. I was always an athlete, but after losing more vision and stopping, you know, playing sports, I actually got into guide running and ran the New York City Marathon in 2014 and ran four more marathons. After that, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia and Boston, and they got into tandem cycling. So I do that now at a national and elite level. So uh, athletics was always a big part of what I do. And through that, uh, we, I started foreseeable future foundation after graduating. So I started it in 2017 and the mission is to help the visually impaired and blind live more fulfilling lives through sports and recreation. And there's a few things that we do. We focus on education and awareness and advocacy, uh, before the pandemic. And even now we're doing more events in the community like we did at Susquehanna where we're going to have a dining in the dark or we ask people to do certain activity simulating a different visual impairment or blindness to give them that perspective and step in the shoes of someone like myself and doing daily sort of functions which is great we're focusing on advocacy more and now we've created certain materials manuals and certain things for younger visually impaired and blind kids to use uh, in their local community and make sure that they know how to advocate for themselves because that's a big piece of it. And then also focusing on more ranch style activities, which we're launching next year, which is really exciting in five or six different states to give people that aren't maybe athletes, but still want to become recreational and do some fun things and be out in nature, uh, give them that experience. So more ranch style activities like horseback riding, fly fishing and other things, which is really exciting besides our, our big program that, that we offer for the visually impaired and blind is our funding program, where we give the opportunity for people to apply for funding, whether they need money for equipment, for race fees, for their guides, for coaches to go experience sports at adaptive sports at any level. And then also for organizations that have existing programs uh, geared around the adaptive sports world. So there are certain camps where there are week-long camps all over the country and world where they're specifically for this sort of community around adaptive sports. So we help cover their cost. We help cover the cost of kids to go to the camp. So uh, we've grown that program. Uh, and this year we've helped over 3,000 visually impaired and blind kids, young adults, veterans throughout the country. 
so we started small and we've grown every year and we continue to grow now. So it's kind of how I started foreseeable future, how we help and what, what we're doing there. And with all of our programs, trying to change the perspective of what visually impaired and blind people can do. That's a big part of our new programs and what we do in general. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how it all came together between my personal experiences, which, you know, that can be tough and actually just not focusing on that and, uh, just moving forward and figuring out how I could help the community I'm a part of through something I love with sports and always being active and uh, not letting that that start from diagnosis to each each you know progression of my life to this point stopping me or being being something that um, is a weakness. It's more of just a part of of who I am and kind of what I do. So um, even even in high school, I I needed certain tools when I was losing more vision. Uh, to be successful. And once I had the right people and had the right equipment to be successful, I, I was, and then was able to attend college. So it's all kind of uh, worked out. It's been an interesting experience dealing with uh, the whole visual impairment, but it's uh, it's all kind of worked out. So um, that's kind of more about my story, Sarah, more about kind of the journey and what we do with Foreseeable, how it started and kind of what we're doing now to, to help people. Um, so I don't know if you have any other questions or things that would be beneficial to share with the audience or, um, things that they might be interested in, but, um, you know, if you have any questions, let me know. Yeah. So I appreciate you taking us through kind of the journey, um, you know, from first diagnosis to now helping other people. Can you share a little bit more detail on what it was like, you know, first using a cane and then the process of getting a seeing eye dog? Sure. So for a long time, I uh, thought getting a, a cane or a dog would be more one or two more steps to losing more independence, which was silly. Uh, I think everyone just has to come to the point where they, they embrace it and they're willing to use it and realize it's just a tool and a resource that can help them. So once I got over those sorts of uh, aspects of, of just mentally using a cane or even getting a dog, it made things easier and the cane is great because it helps you find the obstacle and then you can get around it. And the mobility training that goes along with that isn't uh, the easiest thing in trying to adapt your whole life to using uh, the cane and, and being able to help you navigate. Uh, there's two different types of canes. Um, there's a marshmallow tip, which is more of just pointing um, across your body. And then the one that I liked was a roller cane. So it looks like a tennis ball at the bottom and it just rolls so you can feel every object and obstacle and things in your way, which is, is nice. But, uh, then it got to the point where I thought I could use the dog. I was ready to, of the responsibility of, of having a dog for myself. And, uh, it's just a different level of mobility and, and independence, which is great. Uh, so Lester, he's my, my guide dog. He's a black lab. He helps guide me around the obstacle completely. So it's, a faster type of mobility and I think better mobility and even more freedom uh, and independence where the cane was great, but most of the time I was latched to someone's elbow, even with my cane and with Lester, uh, we just, we just go. So um, it was pretty interesting. The mindset that I had with each, you know, obstacle of a cane and then a dog thinking it would make things harder when it just made things easier and kind of how that process worked. And um with, with getting a guide dog, it's kind of a long, longer process and you have to go there and you spend 
every second training with your dog to bond, but then also to make sure when you go back out into the real world that you guys are a good match and you'll, you know, everything will, will work out well. So it was a longer process and I think more mentally draining than physically draining going through the training with, with getting a dog. But that's kind of the, the process there of how, how both of those kind of came together and, and uh, how they work and, and just kind of even the, the process of, of the training with both of those two sorts of uh, tools. Uh, Lester isn't just a tool. He, he's, he, he's, he helps me do a job, but he's my, uh, definitely my best friend. And is it difficult for you to like take care of Lester on top of Lester taking care of you? No, um, that, that's the great thing at guide dog school, which is, is fantastic. They do a great job. They show you how to brush the dog, how to feed the dog, how to, I mean, they're really incredible just doing everything and, and anything, uh, that you, you would need to do for them. They, they help you, which is incredible. Um, I've definitely had some, I've gotten better with people trying to touch Lester when he's in harness. Most people are pretty respectful and pretty, pretty good, or they kind of get what the harness means, but, um, some people try to pet him. And at the beginning, that was an adjustment for me. Um, now it's more of just being able to educate people and, and give them that experience of when he's working and his harness is on, he, he can't touch him or pet him. He's, he's working, but when it's off, he's just a he's a great dog. So, um, honestly, the other piece of that wasn't, uh, it wasn't as hard, you know, it was an adjustment, but the, the school does a great job of teaching you how to, how to do everything when it comes to having an animal. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit about what it's been like losing your sight over time, knowing like once you were diagnosed, knowing this is the, what the future holds? Yeah. So I was, I was pretty young at the time. So I don't think I really grasped it until I was probably in my teen years of, you know, there's maybe different or there's something else, um, you know, that I can't really see that well. And how do I, it took me a long time to figure out how to explain it to people and, you know, tell them that I need help and I need certain accommodations and how kind of all of that works. So, um, and I had enough vision up until around high school where I didn't really I didn't need that much I could get by. Um, so it was, you know, I don't think I really understood it until, uh, you know, my teen years and then high school years of really understanding that, uh, you know, there is going to be a challenge and, and, you know, things that I need and ways that I, I can still do certain things, things that I can't do, um, which was, you know, tough, but, and, and saying that, you know, there were things that I could do in the past, but I can't do now. Um, were, were tough at certain points, but uh, luckily it was never really that hard for me to be honest. I know that sounds silly, but I never let it stop me really. I mean, I always say I, I've done some other interviews and they ask me, you know, similar question. And it's just, I don't have time for it. I don't have time to, I think even when I was younger to um, stop and think, well, what is this? How's this going to change my life? It's just kind of learning on the fly and trying to figure it out as you go. And then in those, those teen years, um, still being active, still playing sports, still doing all the things or as much as I could with the vision I had, uh, then at that point realizing in high school, okay, I'm going to need more accommodations. Okay. Actually, this is going to change certain things 
that, um, you know, I can do not saying I can't do certain things. It's just figuring out ways to make them work and trying to get people to understand those that, that I, I can do anything that I want to do. And, and this is how I can kind of do it. So I guess it sounds silly, Sarah, but that's kind of how that's worked in the transformation um, from beginning to, to, to now. Yeah. And it's, it's a great mindset to have um, the fact that you were able to kind of just let it happen as it was and, you know, kind of keep pushing forward and figuring out how am I going to adapt? So you mentioned how you've run a couple marathons and you're now into tandem cycling. Can you share how that works um, while losing sight? Yes. So I was always an athlete, but um, in college, I had to stop playing sports and I still lifted and did, you know, some things and ran a little bit. And a friend told me, well, why don't we run a marathon thinking, well, I'll do that in 10 years and I'm losing more vision. So the most running I can do is on a treadmill. And he said, no, no, let's do it. So he convinced, convinced me to raise money for, uh, you know, an organization that was trying to find a cure for visual impairments and ret retinitis pigmentosa, which is the disease I have, the retinal degenerative disease that I have. So he finally convinced me and we did it. And the way that we, uh, we trained and I've done my marathons and have run, uh, in the past would, I, I just run side by side with my guide. Um, a lot of people do tether, which it's just a rope and you're either, uh, tethered together at the wrist or waist. Uh, but at that time I had enough vision where I didn't really feel like I needed a tether. And honestly, I didn't want to feel like like Lester, I didn't want to feel like a dog on a, on a leash. Honestly, I think that was just my mindset with that piece of equipment, which is great. And it helps a lot of people, but I just didn't think I needed it or wanted it at the time. So it sounds kind of silly, but I would just run side by side on my guide. I'd have sometimes two guides. So I'd have one person in front and then one person to my right. And we just, I'd run right on the shoulder and I'd try to listen to where they're running um, from their footsteps sometimes they would have music going on their hips so I could hear where the music was coming from. Uh, so just different, the traditional way of doing it is really being tethered, but, uh, I had run four marathons and two half marathons and just ran without being tethered and we made it work. We had no issue. If at some point at the beginning of the race, my, I had to latch onto my elbows guide and we started out that way. We just did. And we kind of, uh, kind of just made it work even during training. For my first marathon, we trained on the West Side Highway. So a lot of obstacles, a lot of people, uh, everything. I actually used my cane uh, sometimes when I was training. So think about how hard that could be when you're really only running with one arm that you can use. Um, and the cane, funny enough, was an indicator for everyone else. Okay, he might have a challenge. So, you know, if he hits us or runs into us, like, okay, it's it's we're not going to curse at him or say something bad. And it also was a nice kind of safety net on my left side because I would always have my guides run on my right side. So it's kind of interesting how that worked. I didn't use the cane for the marathon because you couldn't, but um, I guess we just retrofitted things and we made things work. So, um, you know, there were some days where they couldn't run with me. So I would just train <clears throat> on a, a treadmill in the gym, which I hated, but you just kind of have to do what you have to do. Um, even training for New York city in college, I, I knew the track, the indoor track really well. And if there was someone on the basketball court, they kind of knew what I was doing, or they had an idea of what I was doing at the time. So 
they would say, you know, Hey, we're on your left. Hey, this is going on. So, um, sometimes when I was doing my training late at night after classes and everything, I would just train on the track because I knew that just in my head where everything was. And then if someone was a team was practicing or something else was going on, they would, uh, they'd let me know what was, what was happening. So that was running. Um, cycling is pretty interesting. It's, it's a tandem bike. So it's a two person bike. There's a sighted person on the front and then someone like myself on the back. So it just looks like two bikes put together and you're connected through the chain and the pedals. So there's a lot of verbal and nonverbal communication. Uh, the nonverbal is through the pedals. Uh, you can feel your, your pilot, which is the person on the front. That's the terminology, uh, really well, but then there's, there's a feel out process, uh, between the, the pilot and the stoker, the stoker is the person on the back of the tandem. And I actually would compete on the road and on the track. So the track is a velodrome and it's uh, 250 meters or 333 meters with four turns. So four banked turns and you're riding at an angle either on a wooden or concrete track and there's no brakes on the bike on the road there's brakes and it's different terrain and hilly and everything but the track's a little bit different so um track is more shorter faster races road is longer sort of endurance races and um they're, they're two different types of variations of cycling but that's just a little bit more about tandem and kind of what it's like and, and how it kind of works and you mentioned that you're competing in tandem at a larger level. Is the yes. goal to eventually like get to the Olympics? So my, my goal with tandem cycling at first, when I did it, it was more just for, to be for fun. I had only ridden a bike when I had vision, uh, when I was little and with the training wheels. And then when I was 16 and I had a little bit more vision, I said, I want to just try it before, you know, whenever I, I have to stop riding a, a single bike. So I did that at 16 and that was it. And then at 20 something, I got introduced to tandem and thought I'd, well, it's something I can do with family or friends for fun. And at this training camp I attended, I realized that I could actually succeed and be successful and compete in an elite level. So, um, over the past five or six years, I've been, you know, training and competing. And the main goal is to make a world world championship or world cup team with the, the goal of hopefully making the Paralympics in 2024, 2028. Um, I've had a few setbacks over the past six months with just injuries and stuff, but, uh, and trying to find people to race with, because that's a big part of it too. It's tough. Um, trying to find people that don't want to just race, but can race at that level. So there's a lot of different dynamics, but you know, even with the setbacks, those are still my main goals with, tandem cycling. And then whenever that's over, I'll probably go run another marathon or do just triathlon or just something. I, I have to be active. I have to be doing something. I can't just sit around whenever my cycling career is over, but that's the, the end result, hopefully with, with cycling. Yeah. Now you mentioned how like at 16 or so you were like, I want to ride a bike again before I can't. Were there other things that you were doing as a teenager specifically because you knew you wouldn't be able to do them in the future? Honestly, no. Um, that was the only one. Um, the other things I kind of, I, I kind of realized at that point, okay, I might not be able to do those, but there are other things that I can do, or I might be able to do those with different modifications. Um, 
it's bizarre. I don't think there were really any others, um, you know, uh, besides cycling really. And that's just because I think it was more not, I wanted to do it before I had less vision where I couldn't ride a single bike. I think it was more of just proving to myself, okay, I can ride a bike. Um, because, uh, when I was younger, the train, train wheels came off too fast. I fell and I was like, I'm never getting on a bike again. So I think it was honestly, it's, it might sound corny, Sarah, but no, um, the only thing with the bike is more of, I just wanted to prove it to myself. I don't think it was actually more of, I want to do this before I have, I can't do it by myself. Yeah. And now you can do it just with a modification, which is, you know, a lot of what you talked about with the foundation. So can you share a little bit about what the foundation is doing to help people have more active lives? Sure. So, um, and that was a big part of starting it. Um, you know, uh, there's organizations and things out there that focus on visual impairment and blindness, which are all incredible and they're all great. And they focus on research. And my thought was, well, what can we do to help people, you know, in their day-to-day life or in their year where they can be active, they can be moving or just have the resources and know that there is other groups and people maybe in their area where they can get active or just do something or be part of a team or group. So we do a few different things. And one is with that scholarship and funding program where some of these people might already be, you know, they, they found someone to run with them, but they don't have a coach that can help them or they, they don't, you know, the other cost of actually going there and doing it and training for it. Um, we're helping them in that sense for them to actually be able to train and do their race, which is incredible. We've had some, one individual in Boston who, uh, had, had been an athlete, lost some vision and then got, was, was overweight, um, didn't do really anything. Uh, and then he found us, he said, I want to run a marathon. We told him we would help him with, you know, getting the certain pieces together and getting the funding together for him. And he ran, he ran a marathon and now he's very active. He's run many marathons after that. And now it's just something that he loves doing. And he's met a lot of other people through that running community. So, I mean, there's a lot of different examples, Sarah, on where I can say how we're actually helping these people. Another part, honestly, is just even um, the awareness and education aspect of people that are sighted, getting them in the environment of what people like myself go through, I think is a great way to give them that uh, educational component. And maybe next time they see someone who's visually impaired or blind, they might not be uh, as as scared or, you know, what can I say, what I can, what can I say to go approach them and have a conversation with them and um, you know, maybe become friends or just help them or whatever the case may be. And the advocacy piece that we're, we've been working on, I think is vital for the younger visually impaired and blind people because uh, we support different camps and clinics and clubs all over the country. And those are great, but those are only a week or two week, uh, you know, long of, of a camp, uh, certain materials and things that are accessible and can get into the hands of these younger individuals can show them how their peers have, have been successful at advocating for themselves, whether they, they need something in P class or in the classroom or in general, and it's something that they can use throughout the year. So um, those are some instances and ways that we're really making an impact. Um, you know, there's a camp, a tandem cycling camp that we've supported, and a lot of blind veterans go to that camp. And look, I've luckily been able to be there with them to 
see the impact it's making. And some of them have continued to be active, whether running triathlons or doing other things. Um, so there's a lot of different ways and examples that um, foreseeable future has really, you know, helped these people um, and helped the community, the visually impaired and blind community, even just giving them resources where um, they might say, hey, do, you know, does foreseeable future do X? And I say, well, unfortunately, we don't do that. But um, let me connect you with someone that can help you in your area and get your son or daughter active and moving or just know that they're there. So when they want to participate or get involved in something, um, you know, it, it's a sports or recreation component. But as you we all know, there's a lot of other pieces that can come from that with, you know, being more active, being more social. Um, a lot of the, the things that we support, uh, you know, some of the individuals and people are quiet and um, start off in a, in a program where they're really not sure. And then by the end, they're, they're a completely different person with a different mindset and personality. So there's a lot of different ways, I think, through foreseeable we're helping and, and things that we're doing that are really making an impact more into the day to day life of, of, of people. Um, so those are just some examples and things that we've been, we've done and we continue to do to, to make that impact. Yeah. And it's so good to hear, like, if you aren't able to help someone, you're pushing them in the right direction. Yes, because we, we, we don't want to be just, uh, you know, this is what we do and that's it, Sarah. We try to, we, you know, it's, it's tough that, you know, you want to help everyone and you can't in some instances, but um, luckily from resources in the network and just other things, we, we try to at least guide them in the right direction and know that there's other resources out there that can potentially help them if we can't, which is, which is a nice piece. Yes. Now was starting foreseeable difficult uh, in terms of creating a nonprofit, getting a foundation going um, and making it more than just you trying to run something? Yes. Um, so when I wanted to start it, I didn't know, I wanted to give back. I wanted to help. I didn't know how, the how, what, when, where, why, all those things. Um, I had some people tell me it's not going to work. You shouldn't do it. Um, you're wasting your money and time. Um, uh, and uh, unfortunately, I'm stubborn. I'm persistent. Uh, you know, I'm going to see and see if it works. If it does, great. If not, well, no problem. I, I can move on to the next thing. And I just found uh, the attorney to help me. I had all the pieces together. I, I wrangled a couple of friends to help me, um, you know, make sure I had the legal documents. I got our 50C13 status, all those sorts of pieces together and making sure that um, we could get a board together with family and friends and then have a clear mission of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to help. So, um, you know, that was, that was probably you know, years in the making, I, I always say probably started at what I did at Susquehanna and then taking that um, from, you know, a small school and campus and putting it into practice and um, doing it by myself at first was, was difficult and challenging, but I was persistent and figured out how I could make it work and just getting the right people around me. And then once we, we had those pieces together, it kind of just hit the ground running. We had a small fundraiser. We raised not much, but, you know, around, I think $40,000 and we were able to help some people in that first year. And then it really just, uh, luckily, I guess when you, you, you do good, sometimes good things happen and it all just kind of fell into place, but, um, always learning on the go, always learning new things about, uh, about this whole, you know, nonprofit, because, uh, you don't just wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to start a nonprofit. You know, how does it work? How, how are you going to make it work? And, um, how are you going to grow it and really, 
help people that you want to, you know, serve and, and impact. So um, it was, I guess, a combination of my persistence, stubbornness, and just willing to do it because I knew I, I wanted to do something. And once I showed, I think my friends and family and certain people, okay, I did it. Now I need your help. It kind of all kind of, it, it all just fell into place, luckily. But it was, it was definitely a challenge at first, but I, I made it work. Definitely. And what do you think the future holds for foreseeable? Well, I think um, in the near future, we're, it's, we're, we're doing more. So we're, we're having one or two more fundraisers, which is great because we continue to grow and we just want to help more people and grow our, continue to grow our funding program. And then also be able to make sure that we have everything in place to start the two to grow, to start and grow the advocacy program that we, we are offering and have launched this year and growing next year. And same with that recreational, the ranch program that we have. Um, we're trying to do some more collaborations and partnerships with some groups and organizations to do some more educational and awareness events, because we think that's a big piece. Uh, a lot of people that were at that first event, that dining in the dark that we had, they all love that event and want us to bring it back because it really gave them the perspective and mindset of how would they eat a meal with little to no vision. So um, we're hoping to grow that and bring that back uh, throughout the country, which is fantastic and um, be able to do some of those with some, some groups and sponsors and people around the country and, and grow, grow that as well, because that's important with the education and awareness piece. And we do it in a fun, I think, and intimate sort of way. And then just continue to grow, raise, raise more money and be able to, to really just, just help more people and, and grow these programs and give more opportunities around the sports and recreation world um, and any, any other endeavors we, we have. But um, between you know, our fundraising goals, our efforts of events that we want to have and, and impact, I think uh, we're, we're growing at a, a pretty good rate. Every year we've raised more and we've done more to help more people. So it's just hopefully staying on that path and have a clear focus on these, these buckets that we want to want to start and grow and, and just have that plan moving forward. And of course, it's always, you know, it's a private nonprofit. So, you know, we can't, if we can't do what we want to do and, and help unless we have more dollars and more things to bring in. So we're, we're trying to figure out ways to do that and just continue to grow and, and do more. Great. Now taking a bit of a slight turn, what would you, what sort of advice would you offer to people who are sighted, who, you know, might meet somebody who's visually impaired or blind or see somebody with a cane or a working dog? Like what sort of advice would you give to somebody in any sort of situation? Like, what would you want to hear? Well, it's, it's tough, Sarah, because it's person to person, but I think most of the time I'd, I'd say, you know, if, you know, I just approach them like anyone else. And if, for example, I've had friends where they're like, oh, I saw someone in New York City was, you know, had a cane and they had trouble getting off the subway and they weren't sure where they were going. And I asked them, you know, I went up them, to them and just said, hello, you know, do you need help? And they said, oh, yes, thank you. So um, I think there's a lot of apprehension on what you can't, you know, what can you say? What can't you say? What can you do? Um, and I think it's really just approaching them like anyone else and, um, you know, just being more aware, um, of their surroundings. If they see someone, um, you know, they could ask someone if they need help and someone might say no. And 
Um, that's, that's good too, but that's kind of the situation. I think if someone sees someone with a cane and with the dog, um, everyone wants to pet the dog, but you know, of course, always asking. And even if people are interested, um, for me, just for example, they, you know, said, well, what's his, what's his job or what does he do? And, um, it's just another way to educate them, which is cool. So, um, I've had two different perspectives and I can only speak from my experiences with, with that, Sarah. I did a pottery class for a year for a while. And uh, finally it was getting close to the end of the pottery class. And a gentleman came up to me and said, Griffin, I'm so sorry. And I said, Oh my goodness, what's wrong? Are you okay? He said, no, no, no. I, I, I saw that you had the cane. I saw that you're in here, you know, doing the pottery class like anyone else. And I'm just sorry. I didn't ask sooner, you know, and, and become friends with you and just talk to you more beforehand. And uh, that person became a good friend and kind of just went from there which was interesting. And I was then another experience. I was working out in a gym and one day uh, I was trying to get the treadmill to start for a marathon that I was training for. It wasn't working. Someone came over and said, can I help you? I said, sure. Thank you. Did my training run on the treadmill and then was done and months went by. And that same person approached me when I was walking outside of walking out of the gym and said, you know, I see that you have a cane that um, you have some challenge, but you're working out in, in here harder than anyone else. You're going from burpees to push-ups to the next thing. And I'm over here just on my phone, not really working out. Um, I need someone to train with me. Do you want to train together? And I said, sure. What are you doing tomorrow at 6 or 7 a.m.? So, it, it, And now he's become a great friend as well, him and his family. So it's just funny. Um, each person is different. And I've experienced different you know, perspectives like that where in the pottery, the person wasn't sure. He didn't know what to ask. And, you know, I, I don't think that's the right approach. I think the, the second example is, you know, that my friend just saw that, okay, Griffin has a cane, but he's just working out in here like anyone else, harder than anyone else. And I need to train with someone. So let me ask him. He might say yes or no, but I'm going to ask. So I think just being willing and open to approach just like anyone else, like you would with anyone else um, is the best thing there with, with that. And I can only speak from my experiences because everyone's different person to person with how they would, you know, react to, to some, someone, um, the side of world, I guess, um, approaching them, but it's like anyone else. That's, I mean, a part of what we do with the education and awareness piece. Yes. Yeah. And I appreciate those examples that you shared. Cause like you said, every person is different and how they will experience different things. Um, and I think sharing those examples really shows, you know, people treated you like just another person. And that is so important for people with varying disabilities. At the end of all my episodes, I do ask a random question that doesn't have to do <laughs> <Uh-oh>. with, <laughs> it, it doesn't have to do with the people's background and it's different for every person. Um, so my question for you is what makes somebody a hero? Oh, that's a loaded question, Sarah. Um, what makes someone a hero? I, uh, um, I guess for me, it's dealing with a challenge, whatever that might be in their, you know, existence, life, work, whatever the case may be. And, you know, um, pushing through it and finding and showing how they did it and what they're able to do, um, how they're able to help an individual or other people if they know, if they're, if they know they're doing or, or not, and how they're up, you know, making people maybe more aware or make them feel better or 
um, just always be there, you know, be there to help them along or be a voice or advice. I mean, those are the first words and, and sentences that kind of come to my mind when you ask what, what is a hero to me? That's kind of, I think someone being selfless, someone helping and, you know, whatever perspective that might be um, and, and showing that they've overcome something, whether it's big or small or whatever the case may be. And, and uh, kind of sharing that with others and finding ways to incorporate that into other people's lives. I think that's, that's what I would come to mind. All right, that brings this episode to a close. Of course, as expected, I will be leaving the website for Griffin's Foundation, the Foreseeable Future Foundation, and I'll also be leaving the link to the foundation's Instagram as well if you would like to go follow that page. I'm sure they would appreciate the support. And if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. Brings you to all of our past episodes, all of our social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And of course, if you would like to be a guest and share your story, my email is in the description as well. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. And if you would like to donate to the podcast, a link to do that is in the description as well. So thank you so much, Griffin, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Sarah.